Hi guys, my name is Casey De Silva. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Nice to see you. Um, yeah, I just, you know, it's it's funny because when I moved to Houston, I've moved around a whole bunch of my in my recovery. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been the type of person that has to have had to move when you've been sober and trying to sniff out where the good meetings are and what what I mean by that, you know, good being a meeting where you feel like you know, people aren't just whining about whether or not their cat got sick today, but they're actually talking about, you know, the power that God's brought to their lives and working the steps and how their lives have changed as a result of, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I was like wandering around into all these meetings and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of war stories. And I, I just happened to find upon this group and, you know, lo and behold, found out there was a bunch of other people that were in my lineage just that I just didn't know. And it's great, it's like two minutes down the street from me. And I'm, that's my home group. So I'm a, my home group is the primary purpose group here in Houston, Texas. It's, uh, the name is Clear Cut Directions. And we you know, basically just go straight out of the book and read out of the book and um, you know, take a look at what those first 164 pages say and how we can apply those to our lives today. So yeah, we are, we are pretty big on the whole sponsorship thing. Cause I, you know, one of the things that I was taught when I came in was if, hey, you're going to come in and I'm going to take all my time as a sponsor to work with you, to help you figure out how to like escape death, then my requirement is going to be that you go do the same with some other girl um, who maybe doesn't know yet that there's a way out because that, that I think is the, the very, the coolest thing. I am, um, uh, my, my sobriety date is 6409 and I got sober in the Texas Hill Country. So I got sober in a little place called Kerrville, Texas, which basically has nothing to do there aside from you know, recovery or be a retiree. And at the time I was 24 and, um, you know, just ended up in this freaking hotbed of enthusiasm where, I, you know, walk into this meeting and it was, it was kind of like everybody in there, as you guys can imagine, knows that you're the newcomer, right? And they just all immediately knew. I probably looked a little bit like a first step experience. Um, I was sort of like a, a goth girl dressed in black taffeta, high lace collars in the middle of summer, dead of summer in Texas. I looked, um, I looked probably about as happy as I felt on the inside and I was absolutely dying of alcoholism. And you know, all these women just like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. What's your name? You know, they want all this, know this, all the stuff about me, which the, the reality is that one of the first times you walk into an AA meeting, you, you're really hoping you can just kind of slink, slink around the back, or at least I did. And uh, they, um, you know, they kind of taught, taught me about what the meeting this program was because they, they really took the time. I, I remember, um, I was living in Austin, Texas at the time before I got sober. I was, you know, out in a band in Austin and um, really kind of thought to myself, you know, one of the things I, I need to do is I need to, I need to get my band back and I need to get the, the, the guy back that I'm with and I need to go back to school and I need to do all of these things. And, you know, I walked out of that AA meeting, the second one I ever went to, and, you know, all those women had remembered my name from the very first time that they they met me. And it was kind of one of those moments where I realized, hey, you know, maybe there's something in this AA thing. These people actually took a second to, um, you know, to care and, and to figure out why, why I was there. And that, that mattered. Because I, I don't know up until that point, and maybe some of you guys can identify with this. I don't know up until that point that I had had a ton of friends that were really 
true people that actually really cared deeply about me. I certainly didn't about other people. And as a result, the types of people I surrounded myself with were sort of similar. And it was just a really, um, really cool, amazing thing. And, you know, so these, this women, these women, you know, they're all, Oh, do you need a sponsor? Do you need help? And, um, they would, you know, they say this thing in meetings, right? Look for a sponsor who has something that you like, who has something that you want. And I'm like, I don't know what, this this girl had like a car and she, her hair looked clean and I was like that sounds good to me I I don't know what you're supposed to be looking later on down the line you kind of realize like oh you know it's like the internal glow and they they have this recovery that you want and I didn't know about any of that stuff I just know this girl kind of looked like yeah she had her act together and after um you know at the time years and years of sleeping on a mattress that had no sheets that sounded like a pretty uh that sounded like what I wanted right there. And, um, you know, the, the coolest thing was she just, she said, okay, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to give me a call and we're going to sit down and we're just going to, we're going to qualify you. Try to find out if you're, you know, the real deal alcoholic that it talks about in this book, right? Which I found a little bit, you know, offensive. <laughs> Shouldn't you know that if obviously I'm an alcoholic, if I came walking to this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but she was really, really clear. And so was everybody in that group that just because you drink a little too much on occasion does not necessarily mean you're an alcoholic. And she took me right into this book and I'm going to um, refer to that a lot just because it's the only reason that I, that I know anything. Um, you know, she took me this book and she, she took me to page 20. It says, says down in the bottom of 20, it says, it outlines for us three different types of drinkers. First one, it says, moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or alone. Okay, take it or leave it alone. I knew I was not that type of drinker, right? I was super clear I was not a moderate drinker. Then it goes on to say, then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. And then he gives us this awesome statement where it says, if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and may even need medical attention. And so one of the things that I have found so interesting, you know, just going to a ton of different AA meetings in a ton of different cities over the time that I've been sober is you know, I don't know that we're always taking the time to help people figure out if they're this hard drinker person or if they're the real deal alcoholic. Meaning, there are, there are some people from my past who, if you would ask me at the time, I thought they're alcoholic, I think they drink like me. But the problem was those guys, when they, they got the girl, they got, you know, they got the good job, they got the scholarship to school, they got all these things in their life, they had a little medical trouble. They were they able to either either stop or moderate their drinking, which was just not ever anything that I was able to do. Um, I know that this is not the case for everybody, but I was a 100% a blackout drinker. I was drinking to blackout multiple times a day, and that was just the reality for me. You know, being from about 19 to 24, um, and I, I I could not for the life of me understand why I could not manage to stay sober. And part of the thing was I sort of thought that people were out, you know, if you're alcoholic, you're only living under a bridge. And this book is so clear to us that that's just not the truth. Guys, I was making straight A's at UT 
in Austin when I went to treatment, which is pretty freaking crazy because basically my deal was I'm going to drink myself to blackout constantly, but I'm going to try to get good grades so that my parents don't question anything that I'm doing from afar. All they see is the grade and they don't ask me any questions about anything else because my grades are good. The truth is on the inside, I'm dying. My house is a total wreck. The guy, again, has left me again because I'm no fun to be around. Um, and everybody in my life is just basically running away from me as, as quickly as they possibly can. And, and I think part of the reason was is I kept over and over again making these promises, these real, true, I believe you could hook me up to a lie detector promises where I would say I was going to stop drinking and I meant it with every fiber of my being. And then the next day, it was like that promise just went right out the window. And I could not understand how somebody who could manage to get all these good grades at a really good school just couldn't manage to not drink. You know, and so the, the woman who, who took me th through this book, she was like, Casey, are you a hard drinker? And, and the reality was when I looked at this stuff, ill health, falling in love, change of environment or warning of a doctor, none of those things were other able to stop me. You know, and, and you know, sometimes you, you go into some meetings where people are like, oh, you got sober at 24, you know, I spilled more alcohol on my shirt than you ever drank. Okay, well, that's not helpful to anyone to say. Um, but, but, you know, it's kind of like they, you know, they helped me understand that it really wasn't about the amount of years that anyone's been drinking, but really do you have this thing called this mental obsession where you keep telling yourself you're going to stop and you're not able to do it. Guys, I had um, super weird type of psoriasis over like 85% of my body. I don't know if y'all, if y'all know what psoriasis is, it's horrible. I had it over 85% of my body because some weird autoimmune disorder that I got. And, you know, when the people who were around me would ask why I was drinking so much, I'd be like, do you see, it looked like I had been rained down acid rain. I'm like, do you see what I look like? I mean, as a, especially at the time as a 23 year old girl, I was extremely vain. I'm like, if you looked like this, you would drink too. And I'll tell you what, most of them were kind of like, what dog hunts? That sounds, that makes sense to me. But the funny thing is, what do you think one of the first things the doctor told me not to do was if I wanted to try to get over the psoriasis? He was like, hey, guess what? Maybe you should not drink because it's an autoimmune disorder and it's just going to cause it to continue to flare for this weird type of uh, psoriasis you have. But I couldn't manage to stop drinking. So it's one of those things where I think a lot of the stories in this book are helping us to really understand our lack of reasoning, our lack of sanity. Because if you ask everyone around me, I'm telling them I'm drinking because of the psoriasis, but the doctor is telling me you can get over it if, if you'll stop drinking. But I couldn't manage to do that. And there's this part then over on you know, 24 where it says, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice and drink. And this idea that it wasn't a matter of just, you know, kind of learning what my triggers were or, you know, learning how to, you know, just, just put the plug in the jug. It was really about understanding that I had a mental obsession that was absolutely beyond my choice and control. And that without God's help, I was going to be doomed to continue to repeat the same cycle of alcoholism over and over and over again. Um, and so, and that, that first sponsor 
she really, really, her name was Lauren. She just really, really taught me what it was to, to help qualify, you know, somebody else who was new and help them figure out, are they the type of person who really needs to go to AA? Because the truth is, and I mean no disrespect, not everybody who drinks too much needs to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Some people really truly can go to good therapy and that will solve this stuff for them. Guys, I was in therapy from about age 15 on, about the same amount of time that I was, um, you know, getting loaded and um, couldn't even ever even be honest with a therapist regardless of anything else. And it wasn't until that moment where another alcoholic sat down across from me on a table and said, I know where you've been. I understand what you've ex you're experiencing. I've been there too, and I have a way out. Um, you know, because because the real deal is, if you can manage to stay sober by just, you know, you know, calling your sponsor every once in a while, and maybe going to a couple meetings, and never doing any step work, and never learning to be of service, or pray and meditate, or any of those things, you know, you may, you may have to ask yourself, is this really the place for me? Because because I'll tell you what, guys, I am. Um, I am not the type of person that just, you know, meetings work for a recovery program for me. I very, very much believe what the original 100 in this book were trying to explain was that, you know, if you want to escape the grips of alcoholism, we have a solution. It says on 25, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which a process takes for uh, requires for successful consummation. It doesn't say like the solution was just go to a ton of meetings and you'll be fine. I don't know about any, anybody else, but I've been in that spot where I'm going to a ton of meetings. I'm living dishonestly. I'm not writing in the inventory. My sex conduct is totally crazy and I want to kill my boss at work. And then I'm wondering why I'm not okay. Well, I'm going to a ton of meetings. Well, that's not going to solve any of the crazy crap you got going on in your spirit, you know? Um, and I, you know, so not just speaking, just to say it, I mean, it's, that is the facts of my experience. Guys, I am, I am very much the type of person where the, my troubles generally in life are of my own making. I am at four years sober. I married somebody I'd been dating for four months. As you can imagine, that ended up very, very well. He was like, I need a green card. And I was like, Cool. Sounds like a great plan. Um, you know, and, and truly it's by the grace of God that I stayed sober through that. The grace of God and being able to work with um, and really just work with a bunch of women at that time, you know, because the, the reality is we can do really stupid things, stone cold sober. <laughs> you know, just real sober. Largest mistakes of my life not all have, have not all necessarily been related to alcohol. And I, I think that's one of the things that it's trying to, you know, tell, talk to us about in step two, right? It says this point, it's like, look, leaving aside the drink question, leaving that aside completely, we're going to tell why living was so unsatisfactory. And the reality is for me that alcohol aside, when I push that all aside, I really truly was suffering from those bedevilments they talk about on page 52, Having trouble with personal relationships. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't control our emotional natures. Prey to misery and depression. Couldn't make a living. Full of fear. Unhappy. Couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. Um, and that was for sure my experience when I first got sober and later became my experience when I stopped doing the things I needed to do to stay well. And I'm years down the line and I start turning around going like, I mean... 
is should I kill myself? I know that's not, I know that's not the experience for everyone. Um, but for me, for me, untreated alcoholism, really, truly drunk or sober looks like depression for me. Um, and, and, the, and the coolest thing is that every single time that I've had enough courage to talk to somebody around me about what's going on in here, they'll be able to point me in the direction of the power that's going to be able to save my life again and again if I'll do a few simple things, which is going to mean I'm going to have to write the inventory on the stupid guy, or I'm going to have to make amends to the boss who I just acted like a jerk to, or, um, you know, go to my home group and clean some things up there. Um, I, you know, and, and that's, that's one of the things that I really love about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, sort of no matter where you go, you, you meet, you meet a bunch of people who sure some of us may have a lot of fun ego stuff going on, but there's a lot of humility in these rooms. And I really, really love that. I mean, where, where else do you really get to go where you get to see just people own these deep, dark secrets of their, of their past and try to figure out how they can use this to turn that to good account to someone else. Um, I, you know, I think that the first time I wrote, you know, red inventory, I think as, as many of us do one, one, my sponsor was super clear. She's like, we are getting you onto the other side of this inventory and amends as quickly as possible so that we can get you working with others and sponsoring other people. And when I read this inventory to her, like most other people, I was real scared. Um, so I'm the type of alcoholic who lied to people around me for 10 months. I said I had lost the hearing in this ear and was losing it in this ear so that I could basically pretend to not participate in life. Basically, I called in sick from life for 10 months and just made up something that was a thousand percent not accurate. Called into my classes, told all my bandmates this. The, anytime the guy would be like, let's have a talk about our relationship, I'd be like, I can't hear you. You know, I mean, it was some real sickness, right? And so we like, so I share this stuff with her and inventory and I'm talking to some of the girls at my sober home and the girl, the girl, my sober home. She's like, that's nothing. I told people I had cancer. I was like, Oh my God. But it was just what, like the swiftness with which she was willing to reveal this truth to me. And she was like, and here's what happened. And here's the amends that I did. And yeah, sure. This one person doesn't really want to talk to me ever again. But here's what my relationship looks like with my family now. Oh, and by the way, I'm two years sober, by the way. You know, and uh, it, it, it has been so cool to be around a group of people who's willing to do that for one another, to share those kinds of stories. Because I think the very first time that I ever felt like maybe I wasn't just a total screw up was when I had those women around me start to tell me that they had done similar things, that they had gotten sober too. And they had gotten, you know, like a, a, an inner sense of peace and a job and, you know, managed to maintain friendships for longer than six months. I mean, these are the types of things that really seem, you know, un, unattainable to me. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine the idea of, I couldn't imagine the idea of waking up and not kind of feeling like a piece of crap. You know what I mean? I know that's not the case for everybody, but that was certainly the case for me. Um, and when I started to, to do that, that inventory and discuss those things with other people is really when I started to you know, have the experience that maybe I wasn't so bad and someday things would change. And as I went about and I made those amends, I had to go all, to all the professors at UT and tell them that I had lied about the hearing situation, which was 
very fun. Um, so I'm, I'm at this point, I'm about 60 days sober and I'm out making amends because we were taught the same way that the first 100 were, which is that you work those steps real quick um, and you go clean up your crap as quickly as you can. And I, and I, so I go to, to UT and I'm freaking out because I'm about to tell all these professors that all of these classes I missed, I did not have a medical excuse for. I'm thinking in my head, they're going to take my degree away from me. I'm painting, you know, as we do painting crazy pictures of, of the reality that we think we're going to experience. And I sat down and I made these amends with these teachers and one of the, one of the um, ladies, she just said it in the most poignant way. She was like, wow, you were real sick, huh? It's like, man, that is the truth. She was like, you know, you just let me know if you ever need help finding a job. It was like, a, it was a wild, it was a wild experience. This is an amends I was for sure not going to go make because I was wor worried about what the consequences to me were going to be if I was honest about all this stuff. And you know, I had this woman who I just lied to for nearly a whole year tell me that, you know, she understood and she was going to be willing to help. I think that's one of the, you know, the most unfortunate things is when you, you, you sit down and you talk with someone and you start looking over those men's cards and, you know, however you write them out, we, we tend to write them on index cards in my lineage, but um, start looking at those cards and they're just like, oh yeah, I'm not going to make the, I'm not going to make this one because that would cause harm to me. <laughs> you know, or whatever kind of funny stuff we say to ourselves when we're trying to like justify, we're not going to um, make amends. And it's like, man, um, whichever that one is that you're so scared and terrified of, that's going to be the one that's just going to blow your freaking mind because you're just going to watch God show up in that moment for you. And it might not look the way that you want it to. Really good example of that for me as I went and made amends to the boy that I thought I was going to run into the sunset with after I got sober because I thought he was going to see how you know, sober I was. And I think I was delightful. And he was like, please do not ever talk to me again. And I was like, heartbroken. I mean, you know, just devastated, 60 days sober level heartbroken. And you know what? I don't know if that guy had forgiven me. I feel pretty confident that my ass would have left that sober living and run back to Austin in about two seconds in attempt to go be in that relationship, which now looking back, now looking back, now that I have the clarity of God's power in my mind and in my spirit, I can actually see that that relationship was not healthy. But I, I, I don't know that I would have ever learned that lesson. If that guy had come back and the amends had gone the way that I wanted to at the time, my life would be completely different. Guys, I ended up, I moved from Austin, which is a great big booming city to Kerrville, Texas, which has got nothing going on in it. And as a react, as a, you know, as an effect of living out there, I lived out there for, you know, for about first year I was in a sober living home, stayed out there for 18 months. I learned to sponsor other women. I learned to get a job and keep that job. I learned to be kind and to nice to others. I learned to lie and then turn around and, you know, maybe clean it up. Um, and my life truly was forever changed because, because that experience that God, I think, kept me there in that town where all I had to do was practice recovery and not run back to the same old, you know, way of life. Guys, people can get sober regardless of anyone. That's, you know, like, yeah, sure. I've, I've seen people stay sober through crazy situations. And there's nothing in this book that says anything like, you know, 
You don't, don't, you can't date anyone for a year. That's not, that's not actually in the book. But what it does tell us is that we need to be really, really careful to check our motives when we do things like get into relationships, because we do have a tendency to like cause some harm and do it for selfish reasons and get with the people that we know that we shouldn't because we're driven by self. Um, and like, thank God that God saved me on that immense, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thank God that he saved my ass on that one. Cause that was real, real good. It says on 53, it says when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is, or he isn't. What is our choice to be? It's basically telling us, <laughs> look guys, you've got two, you've got two choices here. If you're a real deal alcoholic, you can go on to the bitter end forever, blotting out the con consciousness of your intolerable situation as best you can. You can go on and try to figure out how to not drink and it's probably not gonna work for you, or you can expect accept some spiritual help. And um, so fun fact, when I first got sober, I was actually an atheist. So like, not like kind of an atheist, not like, you know, people wanna be like, I'm an atheist, but then you talk to them and you realize like, they're not really an atheist. Like I was a, Richard Dawkins loving anti any kind of religion. I will get wasted and tell you how there is no God and how dare you think you know anything, whatever. I was like, I was miserable and getting drunk and trying to explain to people who were happy that they didn't know anything about their life. Um, and so when, so I like, you know, get to this point, I'm like step two, you know, but my, um, you know, my sponsor didn't didn't belabor the the point a whole bunch. She didn't like have me like try to. Okay, well now we're gonna sit around and when your concept of God comes to you, then we'll move on to step three. She was really very like clear about it. Are you willing to believe that there is possibly maybe something, anything out there that is greater than a power that is you, that like might be able to restore you to sanity? And as soon as I could say, sure. She was like, okay, move on. Um, and I remember going and um, talking to this guy, who's a you know, guy, guy with an eye patch out in, in Kerrville who was really, really helpful in my early recovery. And I remember going and talking to him and saying to him, you know, I'm like, I, I, just, I just don't know how I'm supposed to turn my will and my life over the care of this, of this God if I don't even know he exists. And he said to me, he goes, baby, are you willing to go through with the rest of the steps? And I said, I mean, sure, yeah, I'm down with that. He's like, okay, get out of my office, have a great day. And that, that was a basic, you know, the basic of the roundup of it. It wasn't like, let's try to get you this great experience with God at step three. It was about work the rest of the steps and then see what happens at step nine when you go make that amends and you start to have the powerful experience that God is showing up for you. Go and do a little prayer meditation, not for like two weeks and then hope you levitate, which is like what we kind of all hope, right? We're like, I'm going to meditate once. And if it doesn't work that one time, I'm not doing it. Or I'm going to pray one time for a bunch of stuff that I want God to bring me. And if he doesn't bring it, then <laughs> that I'm gonna give up on this whole prayer thing. It's like, no, what will happen if I really, really invest myself in some of those disciplines and start to watch my thought life, right? Cause it talks about in, you know, we're looking at step 10 and I, I love all that stuff so much, so, so much, but, but it says, right, um, you know, continue on page 84 to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And so it's trying to tell us that the thing that we need to watch is like our thought life, because it's all of those things that arise in our thought life that then become 
word and deed. And all of a sudden, when I start thinking a bunch of crazy stuff out he up here, that's when I start acting really crazy out here. And maybe all of you guys are really, really just sober and stable, but that has not always been the case for me, right? Um, I, I very much, I heard, um, heard a guy, Mark Houston, say this. He was like, I'm very much the type of person who works for a company for two weeks and then thinks that they should be the CEO. And I was like, man, do I identify with that? You know, just like the level of ego that will arise if I don't start keeping my mind in check with some real spiritual disciplines and starting to watch for those things. And then when they come up, being willing to call a sponsor, like not because I'm going to drink, because that's not what it's about today, right? And I don't call my sponsor because I'm worried I'm going to drink. I call her because I'm like, I want to stab this girl in the neck with a pencil if she interrupts my Zoom meeting at work one more. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, those are the kinds of things that I, that I call her about. And, you know, she'll be able to be like, wow, Casey, this really seems like you need to write resentment inventory because you sound very selfish right now. Um, and, it, and it's crazy how over time as a result of like just doing that practice, watching my thought life, asking God to remove the insane thoughts, you know, talking to somebody else about it, making amends and then helping somebody else on the back end, how much my like just behavior has changed over time because of those tiny little things. And I think that, you know, as somebody who's like been real, you know, blessed to get to do a bunch of H and I's over, over the course of our sobriety, it's like, man, you see a lot of people come in who do that one, two, three. And that's, those are all the steps that they do. They maybe, maybe write some inventory. Um, but once it gets to any of this stuff where it's a little bit more difficult, you just start to see people, you know, leave the door and never come back. Um, and, and sometimes I, and sometimes I kind of wonder to myself, I'm, I'm like, is, you know, is that because we haven't delivered a, a, a good enough message? Who knows? Probably, probably not in most cases, but you never know. I think that's one of the, always one of the reasons why my first sponsor and my sponsor still today is really, really intent on, you know, in meetings, making sure that we talk about the solution when we're talking with, with people who are new, because accountability groups are a real great place to like vent your frustration and the stuff that's going on in your world and all that. Um, but, you know, hopefully meetings will, will be a place where we really can be a cheerleader for the power of God in our lives, right? Um, because as somebody who was, you know, an atheist, I now look back, you know, 12 and a half years later, and I, I can't imagine my life without a relationship with God. He, she, it, whatever. I, I really like whatever anybody wants to call it. That's, that's fine. It's one of the things, reasons I love about things I love about AA so much um, that you know, it was really, it was that broad, roomy, all-inclusive. I could come in and really not have an idea of what God was. And then God revealed himself to me over the course of working with these steps. And there was no time where that was more apparent to me than when I first got to sit down with another woman and actually walk through this step work. Um, you know, it, it's, it says the very first line in working with others, it says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. It says, this is our 12th suggestion, carry this message to other alcoholics. And I, um, it, it's interesting because again, having been to a bunch of meetings in a bunch of different cities, it's, it's crazy how often you'll hear crazy things like you can't sponsor somebody till you're 
you know, five years sober. Can't sponsor anyone until you're three years sober. Oh, she, you know, she's only two years sober. She doesn't have enough time to sponsor you. Um, golly, thank goodness that wasn't the case at the beginning of our fellowship because the reality is that Ebby came to Bill when Bill, when Ebby was two months sober, he rolled up to Bill and said, Bill, let me tell you about what I'm learning about the spiritual way of life that's coming out to me from the Oxford group at the time. This is pre-AA. If Ebby hadn't gone to Bill at two months sober, our fellowship wouldn't even exist. Thank God nobody was sitting around telling him, oh, you know, you don't want to go like share this, this word or this message with anyone until you're, you know, sober a long time. Same thing with Bill. Bill's six months sober when he starts working with Dr. Bob. Six months, right? And so it's this idea that we're going to wait around and someday be sane enough or comfortable enough. That's the thing. Like, I'm just too scared to sponsor people. Well, but well, of course you are. Cause you never have. Right. Well, that's really is truly the very best part because it's impossible not to see God when you sit across from some other person and they, the light comes on for that, for them. I mean, like, cause how do you walk away from that and not see some God? I mean, um, and I, I remember this crazy, the, the first girl I ever sponsored, still sober today, I started sponsoring her, was I was 90 days sober. How wild is that? Had a whole bunch of people not stay sober after that, you know, which is not on me. It's all about God's power and God's time. But, you know, who are we to judge? Like our all of our job is to just come and take people through the steps and show them what we've learned as a result of doing them. Our job isn't to be some like, you know, therapist and coach somebody through their life stuff and let me help you. Girl, I don't know. I can't help you with my relationship. What am I going to do for yours? I don't know. You know, and so I think if we can keep our focus on that really basic stuff, we'll be able to experience this awesome promise because this is a promise that that if I work with other alcoholics, that's going to ensure my recovery. Oh, my God, give me that. You know, because it's giving us when we get to step 10, it starts telling us that this mental obsession is going to be removed. It says that, like, you know, like I, I will no longer you know, live in this place where I'm just gonna, oh, I'm gonna try to figure out how to muscle through alcoholism, um, that I'm pla placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. And then it goes on to tell us right after that, that if we rest on that experience and we don't go on and carry on with the rest of this work, which includes sponsoring other people, we're gonna find in our, ourselves in a pretty tight spot where that position of neutrality will disappear. Um, and man, did I buy into that, that really, really hard. And um, you know, I'll tell you, for, there was a period of time in my sobriety where I, I, so I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do AA anymore. I'm going to go do this other spiritual thing over here. Um, I'm going to do this and that's going to be what I'm going to participate in. And I'll tell you, there was a whole bunch of like whole bunch of people in this other spiritual thing that I was doing and they really, really loved God. And it was great. And they were getting psyched. They were getting fired up about God. But slowly, I and I stopped sponsoring people, and the gears just slowly started to come off. It wasn't like I was, you know, going to start drinking. That's not what it was. I just started noticing that my life became more and more about self, because that's the whole thing, right? If it tells us, if it tells us when we're taking a look over in step three, if it says it's selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. If the root of my troubles is me, the very best thing that I can do is to find a way to get out of me and into helping somebody else. So, 
you know, if you have a bunch of sponsees and you're working with those sponsees, it's one less second when you have to spend some time thinking about what you're going to do about the boy or the job or any of this other crazy stuff that you got going on. And, you know, I, um, Myers, who's a buddy of mine from another, you know, PVG group, he had basically told me, cause I told, I, I contacted him like, you know, Hey, bud, I think my, I might just go do this other spiritual thing. He was like, Oh, okay. That sounds good. Well, you'll know. If you start to feel real insane, that it's because you're not working with any other alcoholics. And that became the truth for me. And I realized that. And I, um, man, it was crazy. Like, and it was just, just a brief period of months where I had stepped away and I, and I had, could see so clearly as soon as I came back and as soon as I started sitting with other women and taking them through the steps, what an absolute gift it is that we have this program where we are taught that helping other pe people is the thing that's going to save your butt. Because to go from that place where I was a girl with no sheets on her bed, who nobody wanted to be around, to being in a spot where I can actually support and help some other person go through some crazy stuff is amazing. I mean, it's like, it really, really is. It's like you gain self-esteem by doing esteemable acts and helping other people is one of the number one ways that you can start to realize that you have true worth and value because God shows up in those moments. Hey, there's sometimes there's times even today where like I got a girl and she'll be like, hey, I got so I got this amends to make and I stole a car and then I robbed a bank and I did this. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you on this amends. We're going to call my sponsor on speakerphone right now because I don't know what's, you know, like, I don't know the answers to everything, but the cool thing is that we have this lineage of people that we can turn to and ask questions if we get into a weird spot. Um, and, and I think that's, man, now being a place where, you know, at the beginning of my sobriety, almost everybody that I hung around with was, was basically sober people. And now I'm at a point where that's just, you know, not really the case. Sober people, not so sober people. And I'll tell you, um, we're really lucky that we have some inventory to turn to and some things to do when we start getting twisted because people, uh, I mean, God bless the normies, but sometimes I just want to be like, but would you like to read a fifth step right now? <laughs> because if I could maybe point a few things out to you, but it's just, it's just different. Just don't, they don't have those types of skills. Um, you know, because it's not something that they're forced to do. And the reality is I don't think I would ever write inventory either if I had not been forced to by being convinced that my life was absolutely going to end if I did. It says alcohol is the great persuader, right? Nobody else is the great persuader. The same way it's not my job as a sponsor today to try to convince any sponsees of what they should or shouldn't do. That's not my job. Like, and frankly, I don't have time for that. You want to go out with this crazy guy that you're dating? Godspeed to you. I hope it works out. You sound like you're being pretty selfish. You might want to check your motives, but go on. Um, because, because I mean, who, who has the time to, to, try, to try to figure that out for anyone else? Our, our main goal is really to just help somebody get connected to God. I heard somebody um, also say something really similar to that when I first got sober was that there were two types of sponsors. The types of sponsors who's going to be like, you know, call me every day and call me before any decision you make. And, you know, they're going to point you to them. Like, like that they as the sponsor are going to be the person who's going to have all the answers to their, to their problems. Or you're going to have the type of sponsor who's going to ask you, did you pray about that? Have you written inventory? What did God have to say to you on that one? Have you gotten quiet? You know, and, and that is, I'm so lucky that I ended up with that second type of sponsor because the reality is 
if I am in a spot where where 12 years down the line, I'm trying to rely on what my my sponsor, Patty, tells me I should or should not do, and she doesn't answer the phone one day, then what? You know, she had she really trained me, the women who I who I worked with, how to like actually get quiet and allow that still small voice inside to start answering some questions. Because the crazy thing is, guess what? When the alcohol is out of my system and I start to like get a hold of this, you know, what's selfish and what's not, being able to see those things, most of the times I know what the right answer is. I know the right thing to do. I don't need to call anybody to verify that information. I can, and that's great to talk about it, but it's like, you know, in that when you're, your conscience just starts to really work and you're able to pay attention. And that's one of the things that I know today, if I, man, if today I call my sponsor, I'm like, I really want to do this. She's like, do you? Why are you calling me if you're so, because I know I shouldn't. If I really have to ask people around me, if something's a good idea, I might want to question whether or not it really is, you know, because there's the difference between like shopping for answers and like, just, you know, you want to bounce something off, um, off someone. Um, you know, I, I um, it, it says it here, actually, it says it actually right here. It says um, 98. It's not the matter of giving that's in question, but when and how to give. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely on our assistance rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife. We simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence upon God. You know, and so that includes my sponsor who's not going to be able to answer her phone all of the time. It's like, where's my de dependence really? And there's been many, many times where I'll tell you, I am not perfect and my dependence has not been on God. Why well, start making a lot of silly mistakes and silly decisions and, um, you know, start thinking I know something about how to, you know, run my life. And then I just start to run it right into the ground. <laughs> um, but the sense that idea was burned into my consciousness that it wasn't what anybody else. If I'm, if I'm always waiting for somebody else to change or for somebody else to do something or be something for me, I'm always going to be in a spot where I'm at the mercy of all of those other people. You know, and if, I, if I'm always waiting um, for that, how am I ever going to be free? And I really, really believe, I mean, you know, it's like, the, like they always say, how free do you want to be? You know, how free do you want to be? Um, and there's been times when I've been able to answer that question well and say, oh, real free. I'm really willing. And there's been other times when I'm like, I don't know, kind of free, <laughs> you know? Cause I don't want to have to do the things that are so difficult to actually like get that freedom. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, Oh, well, she just, you know, she keeps coming in and out of the rooms. Cause she just, she doesn't want it. She doesn't want it enough. You know, I mean, is that really the case? Is it that she, she doesn't want to be sober is that she's, this person's not willing to do the things that the rest of us do in order to get here. Guys, AA is not for sissies. You know, we will ask you to do some real tough stuff if you want to come in and be a part of this program. We're like asking you, do you do you want to like engage in some spiritual warfare and just like be on the line trying to fight some real darkness and help some people who are dying from the disease of alcoholism? Because that's what we're asking. You know, we're not like, whereas 
you know, or you can walk into a meeting where they tell you all you got to do is go to a meeting and you'll be fine. Just keep coming back. It works if, if you work it. But, but what if nobody ever explains what that means? You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, how I knew when I walked into this primary purpose group of clear cut directions in Houston, you know, after having been to a bunch of meetings in the city, that's how I knew that this meeting was where the solution was because people were carrying a big book and they started talking about the solution out of the book. They weren't talking about just like, you know, what they thought of the day or their war stories. They really, really were talking about, guys, this is how you get free from the disease of alcoholism. This is how you get free from this, you know, from this spiritual sickness. Um, and really about how to apply those principles into your life. Because I'll tell you what, like slogans are great, man. But if you just say slogans, you don't ever explain to anybody what that means. Like people will be like, oh, it's like, well, if you walk in and you tell a newcomer, you know, just turn it over. Just, just turn it over to God. Buddy, I have no idea what that means at a week sober. Could you explain it to me? You know, which is, and that's how you know you're in a spot where, where you might actually be able to get free because if somebody's willing to take the time and explain that to you without just a bunch of other, you know, let, me, let me give you five more slogans to back it up, they're actually going to tell you, yeah, let me tell you how you turn it over. You write some inventory so that you can see really clearly what your mistakes in this relationship is so that you can get to a place of absolute abandon and surrender, right? Um, and I'm just so glad that's the type of the, you know, the type of meetings that I ended up in were, were those where they started really telling me the truth. Um, you know, the, it, it, it says, and I'll just kind of end with this, you know, one little thing here, because um, this just seems to be what I'm talking about for some reason, who knows. It says on 124, second paragraph down at the end, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past, the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others, with it, you can avert death and misery for them. And what a cool, what a cool gift that is that today those very dark things get to become the thing that you can, you know, go share in a, a little speaker meeting like this or go pull somebody aside. And instead of, instead of just telling them, you know, just, you know, turn your will over, really explain to them how you did that from your own personal experience, because that's what's so valuable, your personal experience of how you've worked these steps. Um, because I'll tell you, I never, never thought that the girl who was, you know, wearing all black in the middle of the summer, who pretty much was either going to drink herself to death or, um, or commit suicide was ever, ever going to be the type of person that could. So today, so let me, let me just give you this really quick snapshot. So today I'm married to about the nicest guy in the whole world. He's literally the nicest human I've ever met. Um, I have a master's degree in counseling, which is super wild. My parents are proud of me. What? Y'all, that's crazy. My parents thought I was a hot mess because I was. Um, you know, and aside from that, I'm, I, I just feel really psyched and happy to be alive. And I'm, I'm psyched to have a relationship with God. So that's, that's this former atheist who walked into AA who didn't know what was going on. And, um, and that's my life today. I, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for letting me come and talk to y'all.